I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we look at these pages from another planet and translate them so that you guys on Earth can understand it. And if you want the intergalactic version, uh, go there yourself. Go to space. Everyone can go. It's free. Hollywood, they might as well be speaking Klingon. Am I right? And if you want our version of it, our down-to-earth practical version... Just two normal run-of-the-mill girls. Stay tuned. Ashley. Yes, Claire? It's been a while. It's been a while, you guys. We did a lot of pre-recording because we had some stuff to do. We were busy in September reading, writing, traveling... And we have even more tour dates coming up. We are going to be in Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Denver, and San Francisco. So make sure to grab tickets because sometimes people have a tendency to say, wait a second, I didn't know you were coming to my city, but it's like after we already went there. And I'll tell you what, one thing we can't do is go back in time. I'm not Jean-Luc Picard. Beautiful reference. Also, if you come to our shows, we always do meet and greets afterwards. We chat with everybody who's down to wait and chat. It takes a little bit because we love to like get to know everyone for real. But if you have DM'd us and we talk weekly, daily, a couple times a day even, and your avatar is not your face, if your avatar is Angelica Pickles and your handle is something like Cuntmonster4, you must introduce yourself. You do not look like Angelica Pickles. I won't recognize you in real life, but I want to know who we're chatting with all the time. Because we know your usernames and we're so excited to meet you in real life. And so I hate it when someone that we DM all the time will then tag us in a picture. And I'm like, I didn't even know that I was meeting you. But I couldn't have. There was no way. I wish I'd known. And I also am sorry if anyone was waiting and then was like, this line is too long. We love to chat and we will chat all night. And that is not good for our sleeping schedule. It's not good for my voice. I'll tell you that I'm still recovering. Anyway, Claire, if you were to write a memoir about your life, what would you title last week's chap? I mean it this time. I mean it. Okay. The fun is over. Uh Uh-oh. As I'm getting down to business, just like Patrick Stewart himself. Patrick Stewart famously said, we are not here to have fun about making Star Trek. (laughs) Quite possibly the silliest little show in the world. Have you seen it? No, but I get the gist. You think it's silly? It's pretty silly for men to be wearing full body rubbered one suits and pretend that they're in the future and talk to aliens. Yeah. I think making contact with intergalactic species is quite serious, but okay. Um, you're going to tell me Whoopi Goldberg could be in a TV show that's not silly? She's yes. a comedian. Uh, she's a prophet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready to get back to Like I am at that point now where I'm like enough silliness. You know, when you're like on vacation and you're like, okay, I'm going to come back and I'm going to be so refreshed. And then you're like actually being away from life for a week or so was the opposite of refreshing because now I'm back and there's no food in the house and there's garbage everywhere. There's a lot of chores. Then we went on tour, which was great. But I got to tell you, I'm so weak of body and mind. We had to wake up early. I actually had to wake up early. I took five flights in six days and I wasn't built for it. The best place for me, I think, is like the future. Like I always say I was born to live in a Wally-esque future where we're just being scooted around on scooters with TVs and screens, having soda IV dripped into my body. That's how I was built. I wasn't built to have weather come at me. I wasn't built for somebody else's germs. I'm not tough. I can't even withstand the force of my own screaming. I wonder if you could get a fainting couch. I don't even want to faint. I want to stay down. I know. but I don't want to fall to the ground. I want to wake up one morning and never get up again. (laughs) I want to take to bed and just live there. Okay, but your chapter starting now for real this time, what was that about? Oh, no more fun. (laughs) When we go on these tours, I'm not having fun. I'm an Olympian. (laughs) 
We're going to train for being present for two hours at a time. It's not just the presence. It's the getting on a flight. Do you know how hard it is to take a flight when you're an idiot? Yes. Taking a hundred <laughs> flights a week. It's, I feel like a colorblind person being asked to like navigate fabric land. I don't know. What is, it's just hard for me. There's no time when I'm on these trips to go get a fun coffee. If anything, now's the time to have packed coffee at home. I'm thinking about getting a cooler for my carry-on and packing little yogurt so I can just stay in the hotel. And I'm too weak. I'm going to have the same yogurt at home that I do on the road. If it's 8 a.m. anywhere, I'm eating a yogurt. <laughs> and that's how I think I have to start my new life. I wasn't built for it, man. I need to stop pretending that these are little mini vacations and start treating them like the Olympics. So starting now, no fun. No fun. And I'll tell you, I didn't have fun today. <laughs> True to my word, I woke up, I read this week's book, which was very serious indeed, unless you think affairs are fun. I think the people tussling are having a good time. If it wasn't fun, then why are you risking your family for it? You know what I mean? I trudged over here. I already killed a mouse today. That's not fun. That's death. I like, I'm living <laughs> what I mean to be living. Serious. Life and death. That's serious. Okay. Ashley, yeah. if you were a celebrity okay, and you wrote a memoir, what would you say the chapter of last week would be? Okay. I'm actually going to go complete opposite from you. Fun all the time, baby. We can't <laughs> be friends anymore. I have been having kind of a lot of fun. I've been really trying to cut down on my screen time by like living in the world and like making plans for myself because I've found out that if I don't have things scheduled... I have a real tendency to do nothing and then not have time to even do the small amount of things I'm supposed to do. But if I have a packed schedule, then I'm just like, okay, these are the things I had to get done. I will do them and like spend more quality time doing things than just having like open-ended rot time. Can I recommend an 8 a.m. appointment with yogurt? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. A hard daily appointment. (laughs) I have a tough time with like mashable foods. I don't know what it is. I don't like feeling like my diet won't change once my teeth fall out. (laughs) Maybe I want to save yogurt for later so it's exciting once I've got my dentures in. Oh, happy Yom Kippur. Oh my God, thank you. I'm having a very happy Yom Kippur. (laughs) No, sorry. I read a tweet about this. I hope you have a rueful Yom Kippur. I will rue I hope you rue (laughs) me. Today is actually also Bug's birthday which is tough because it's raining, which is not what she picked. And so we're having a hard time with that. So I have been having a lot of fun. I've been going to a lot of concerts. I've been trying to like really schedule my weeks because I think that sometimes I get very like depressed when I have no plans because I think that I have no friends. But then I was like, wait a second. Did you reach out to anyone? Did you tell them that you wanted to hang out? So I've been really like scheduling and it's been fun and I'll be having fun all the time. So I don't know if I'll see you. But I'll tell you about it when we're at work. (laughs) If it's on the schedule, you can tell me. (laughs) So speaking of schedules, should we get into a very regimented tale? (laughs) Absolutely. Making it so. A memoir by Sir Patrick Stewart, who is our friend. The web of our life is of a mingled yarn, good and ill together. Our virtues would be proud if our faults whipped them not. And our crimes would despair if they were not cherished by our virtues. From William Shakespeare's All's Well That Ends Well, did he invent that saying? He might have. He invented most things. That's so interesting. Assassin is his. Assassin? Nobody had ever said that word before. 
Which is really crazy when you think about it. Imagine just like, like what a crazy word to just throw in there and he'd be like, they'll get it context. Okay, this is actually kind of fucked up. I hate that like when girls say silly words, people are like, that's not a word. But when William Shakespeare says silly words, everyone's like, oh, that'll define the English language. I think we're not going silly enough. I think we're just abbreviating, but we need to be like whole cloth inventing. Okay, okay. I'll start. Patrick Stewart was born July 13th, 1940. His dad was at war. His father was a lifelong member of the British Army. World War I was happening at this point. Not in America, which might make you confused, but to them. Yes. I also, he's currently 83 years old, and this book came out last week. So he's the youngest of three children. His brother, Trevor, is like two years older than him. And his other brother, Jeffrey, is much, much older than him. He was about 17 years older than him. So already out of the house when he was born, and they don't have much of a relationship. So fun fact about Patrick Stewart, he was named after a slur for Irish people because his father got into a lot of fights. So throwing a patty, I guess, is a slang that he was like, and I want my son to inherit that kind of temper too. Something fun about this book is because he's old and British, there's a lot of Irish hatred in it, which is not something as an American you see a ton anymore. Yeah, but he also like reconciles it when he meets Irish he likes and he's like wait a second are the Irish nice not only are the Irish nice like they're the most fun people in the world yeah he's like I always thought that they were like fucking crazy but it turns out when you party with them it's fun anyway his love for movies goes back to a very very early age pre-birth his birth was delayed because the midwife was at the movies and his mom was like I don't want to call her before she's finished her movie and so he's like ah respect for the cinema So my wife, Sunny, loves to tell friends that I had a Victorian childhood. Oh, my God. That makes so much sense. Because when I first read that, I remember thinking, like, what a funny thing to say about your husband. But they're from very different generations. So I guess his childhood seemed like wackadoodle to her. And deeply Victorian. The vibe of this book is like your grandpa telling you stories from his childhood. It feels very warm. It feels like a rainy Sunday afternoon after Thanksgiving. Not that he would know about that holiday, but yeah, whatever they had, Boxing Day or something British and you're just sitting by a fire listening to your grandpa say when I was a kid there was no bathrooms yeah so he describes his childhood home 17 Cam Lane which was a classic one up two down that means that it was like two rooms upstairs one room downstairs and an outhouse they lived on like the second poorest street in town. They looked really down on the kids who lived on the poorest street in town. One thing about Patrick that he is ashamed of is that he was definitely a bully growing up. But he's like, listen, if you weren't a bully, you were getting bullied. So kill or be killed, my friends. It was a tough time out there. He said one thing that he was taught as a child is don't use fancy words or we'll hit you. Yes. He had a very distinct Yorkshire accent. And while not being very educated, he was a big time reader. And so he has a lot of insecurities around his lack of education, but he used to read so much that he really, in practice, I don't think is that far behind any of his contemporaries. But because he doesn't have the degrees to prove it, he kind of battles that for a long time. I read and I read. We had barely any books in our house, just a big medical directory, some more related books and a Bible. But the Murfield Public Library had a very good children's section. As I got older, the library section of American literature became my obsession. I read them all. You could only take out two books at a time, so I spent part of every Sunday morning at the library. For the first five years of my life, with my dad off to war, my mother was my only parent, and she was a happier person then, though I recognize this only in retrospect. So his dad comes home from war, and he finds out later his dad was offered a doorman position in London, and they offered a job to his mom. But the mom was like too afraid of leaving her home in Northern England. It was all she'd ever known. So she was like, absolutely not. 
So the dad moved back to their home and he worked as a day laborer and they fought poverty for many years and had a very unstable life. And the dad had violent outbursts directed specifically at the mom. He didn't really get violent towards the kids, but they were constantly getting in the middle of the fights between the dad and the mom. Especially on the weekends, he would, starting Friday evening when he got off work, just be drunk until Sunday. And he would come for the mom pretty hard. He gets into his parents' backstory. His mom grew up in the town that she ended up raising the children in. And she had two parents that loved her very much. Her father was kind of respected in the neighborhood. He was a council leader. But she had a baby out of wedlock. With the dad. With the dad. The dad went kind of AWOL and then joined the army. And he came back like 16 years later and married her. Patrick was like, I don't know why you would marry the man who had abandoned you all these years and like left your son to be a bastard child, which was a big deal back then. Yeah, the son, Jeffrey, who Patrick doesn't know that well, it seems like I don't think they've interacted that much in their life. He has a theory that the dad killed the mom. Like he really hates the dad. And so I think Patrick still has like a little bit of that fondness towards his dad that you kind of develop later on when you like get to know their whole story. And you're like, oh, well, this is why he was an angry, abusive man and like develop some compassion. I'm not saying it's warranted. I just think that having grown up with him, Patrick was like a little bit more warm toward his dad than Jeffrey was because Jeffrey never really knew him. Also, it seems like his dad settled and became less abusive as he got older. And as he got more comfortable, like they moved into like a bigger, more comfortable house with like indoor plumbing. He also finds out later in his life when he's 20 and about to take off for his acting career, his paternal grandmother, who he barely knew and never spoke to, calls him and says, come to my house. I have to tell you something. And that is where he finds out that his paternal grandfather, who he had never heard anything good about, but didn't know this whole story had actually abandoned the family to pursue his love of acting. He had first taken on work as kind of a stagehand building sets. And when they needed someone to step in, he would just step in and take tiny little speaking roles. He eventually caught the bug and started acting more and more in town. He moved to London to perform on the West End. He completely abandoned the family, was sued for child support. And when he stopped paying, they sent the police on him. The police let him finish an entire show that he was in the middle of. And then afterwards, when they went to collect the money, He had escaped. He got on a boat, moved to America, where he pursued acting there. That is very representative. I do wonder if Patrick recognizes a pattern. I also do think it puts into perspective his dad coming back to the family. Yeah. I wonder if his dad thought that, like, I'm going to break the cycle. I'm not going to do to my son what my dad did to me. Right. So he lived in constant fear and anxiety because of his home situation. It also seems like he's very close to his mother, and so he can feel the way that it affected her. For five years on Cam Lane, it had been just two children with a loving mother and an auntie and an uncle living across the road. I have no recollection of when specifically the atmosphere in our home began to change. It's taken me decades of analysis, beginning in the late 1980s, to understand and cope with the impact of the violence, fear, shame, and guilt I experienced as a child. The first and most important step was to acknowledge to myself that these things had happened at all. All I know is that when I was five, I was very happy. By the time I was seven, I no longer was. It has taken me decades to process feelings towards my father. I was well into my 60s before I was able to acknowledge publicly what I had witnessed and endured as a child. When I finally did, I used my platform to raise awareness of domestic violence and direct money and attention to Refuge, a UK organization devoted to women and children experiencing such horrific environments. So the first time he ever gets on stage, it like washes over him and it's the first place he ever feels genuinely safe. I don't think he ever truly felt stage fright. It was always just like comfort. Big holidays that mean huge family get-togethers, but if you are about to prepare the meal of a lifetime, you should get a little something back. With Ibotta, 
you get your turkey and all of your favorite sides for free. Starting November 1st for the fourth year in a row, Ibotta is giving 100% cash back on your Thanksgiving feast. Just add the offers in the app to redeem everything you need to make your Thanksgiving feast complete. All you have to do is shop at your favorite retailers and upload your receipt. Ibotta gives you cash back on hundreds of grocery items from produce to personal care to pantry goods, so you can make sure you're beating inflation no matter what you're purchasing. Other apps give you points that don't amount to much. With Ibotta, you get real cash back that you can cash out to your bank account, PayPal, or gift cards. You can also earn cash back on hundreds of online brands and retailers when you start with Ibotta, including Lowe's, Macy's, Sephora, Best Buy, and more. Download the Ibotta app right now and use the code MEMOIR to get 100% cash back on your Thanksgiving dinner starting November 1st. Just go to the App Store or Google Play and download the free Ibotta app and use the code MEMOIR. That's I-B-O-T-T-A in the Google Play or App Store and use the code MEMOIR. So his mom was always very interested in film and he and his mom would go to the movies together on the weekends. They would see the same movies just over and over and over again. As my cinema taste started getting more sophisticated, I started seeing films on my own multiple times. So he's always had this love for the arts, for dramatics. And then he learns that there is a path in because regional theater is huge in Northern England. Yeah, because nobody really has TVs back then, people really do rely on the regional arts, which are funded by the government at the time. And then also the fact that so many of the churches have like church plays and choirs. His brother is a great singer and he's in all the choirs and he joins him. He says he wasn't that good of a singer and he left at one point when his voice started cracking and they were like, come back in a year when your voice is settled. And he's like, I think they just wanted me out and I never rejoined. But he's always joining these places and getting little bit parts here and there. And he just thrives and he loves it. And he's entering as many church plays as he can for as many churches as he can. So he's at the Crowley's Boys School. Which is rough and freaking tumble. He tells a story about a teacher yelling at a boy. And the boy gets their older brother and the brother comes in and just like beats the shit out of the teacher. And nobody knows what to say. So they all just sit and watch this teacher get the shit beat out of him. And then he's like, I don't know that there was ever any uh, disciplinary action. We all just went back to school. But during his time at the school, he learns about the Quarry Theater in Mirrorfield, which is where he lives, an amazing open air venue set in what had been an actual quarry. And there is where he like starts to really train in theater. I loved everything about the pageant experience, the rehearsals, the dress rehearsals, the performance of which there was only one at 5 p.m. After his first performance, he cries because he's like, I can't believe it's over. So I guess there's something called an 11 plus exam, which is a grueling all day affair that played a large part in determining the future of many a British child. It's effectively a sorting system determined which pupils demonstrated the academic aptitude to attend grammar school versus technical schools and other secondary schools. So the day of the exam, he's walking to school and for some reason he just doesn't go. Yeah. He says he has one of the best days of his life. He just like eats a sandwich overlooking the hills and doesn't take the exam, and no one questions it. And they're like, oh, maybe you can retake it. But they never make him retake it. And he thinks it's because his parents were stressed out the idea if he did well on this exam, that means they would have to pay for him to get a uniform and go to school. And it was just more money than they could afford. So they were fine with him not finding out that he was super gifted. Yeah, I don't know if he was very academically inclined. Like, I think he was smart, but I don't think he was a student. Anyway, so then he goes to this other school where he mostly just focuses on acting. It's like kind of an artsy school. I think back in the day, there used to be arts classes in public schools. That's so nice. (laughs) He says time and time again that he is the recipient of a lot of scholarships from the state and from the neighborhood. There's a ton of regional theater. He says the theater is almost like the way that football is organized in England and that there's all these different leagues 
there's like the big leagues and then there's the minors and there's all these feeder leagues. And part of it is just because that's all the entertainment there was. You know what I mean? Yeah. There was no TV and this was something that you could do for a buck. So his teacher, Mr. Dormant, is the first person to ever introduce him to Shakespeare. And it's kind of a revelation. He really takes apprenticeship seriously. Like when a teacher takes him under their wing, he like really takes seriously the lessons that he's learning from them. So Mr. Dormant notices that he loves being in plays and they call him into the school one day and tell him that they have an idea. And the idea is that there is an eight-day residential drama course during the coming spring bank holidays to provide coaching and instruction for local individuals, young and old, who are enthusiastic about amateur dramas, or amdrams, as we call them in England. Everyone involved in this course, from lighting and sound text to actors and directors, will receive tutelage in the ways of the theater, and the eight days will conclude with an evening presentation before a live audience. It's also all expenses paid. It's also for adults. Yeah. The youngest age of admittance is 14. He is 12, but I guess he's big for his age, and they're like, Listen, as a school, we're willing to lie if you're willing to keep a secret. We think you'd be great. And he's so nervous. He's like, I've never been away from home. I don't even think my mom's been away from home. And the teacher's like, I'm going to be there. It'll be fun. I'll look out for you. And his parents are like, if it's free, you can go. So he goes and it's revelatory. He makes friends. He's some emerge. You know how it is. Sometimes the people you know for five days are like closer than the people you've known for five years. And it cracks him open. It introduces him to a whole world of theater that he never knew about and he just wants to go deeper. He met a bunch of people who would go on to be pretty famous like Brian Blessed, who I don't know, but you might. Yeah. Probably not based on the fact that our audience is similar to us, but yeah, but ask your ask your British nanny, Mary Poppins. <laughs> she probably watched him on the telly. So he like learned about movement and he learned about acting and it was the first time it was more than just get up there and memorize your lines, play pretend. He learned about all the strategies and the becoming a character and his mother and his father came and watched him perform and he was so proud and he stayed up till like dawn talking to all of his mates, including a girl that he kissed. He is full of crushes. Kind of a kissing boy. He's like 12 and making out with girls. I think at nine, someone found him in like the war room where you're supposed to run should there be a war making out with a neighbor. He always has a crush and he's always macking on her. He's a passionate fella. So the week ends and he's so heartbroken, but he gets this incredible offer from one of the teachers. Yeah, Ruth Wynn Owen. And she's basically like, if you can get your ass to my house, which is no small feat, it's three hours away by bus and by walk and by everything. It's like two buses and one long walk, I think. I will continue your tutelage free of charge. And that summer, he says he has a friend invite him to a vacation at the beach. And he's like, I can't. I've got class. Sorry. So a bunch of the other boys in that class, they all go every Sunday. And this woman becomes very much like a mentor for him. He dedicates this book to her. She has a huge, beautiful house. And he says just even being there, getting to talk about art and theater and music with her was transformative. And just having someone even tell you that this is something you're allowed to be interested in pursue. And she is kind of a patron of the arts. She has an adopted daughter there who's this beautiful redhead who goes on to be one of the stars of Cheers. So she had an eye. He also at Ruth's first encounters ghosts, which there are a lot throughout his life. He is a paranormal fella. With great aura. Yeah. An incredible aura, people tell him. So at that point, he had no idea that acting could ever be a viable career. It was just like a passion for him. I don't actually know what he thought he was going to do. I mean, I do think he thought he did acting the way some people did sports. Yeah. It was like a pastime. And at one point, a teacher even goes, what are you thinking about doing after this? And he's like, I don't know. I'm really nervous. And they're like, what about acting? He's like, I'm acting right now. And they're like, no, as a job. And he literally didn't even know that existed. I do want to make a mention that he was head boy and head something else. 
He was both the head boy of the school and the head boy of his class, which was like a double award. And he went to his teacher to say, I don't think I should be so awarded when there's so many other boys that could get an award too. And they said that Patrick Stewart is exactly why you get the award. Yeah, that's why you're the boy. Anyway, so it seems like his teachers were always kind of looking out for him because at the end of school, when they were like, you should go be an actor, he was like, that's literally not a thing. So no, thank you. They were like, okay, well, let me talk to my friend. And they got him a job as a reporter at the local newspaper. And he liked it for about six weeks. And then he started being like, well, what if I was in more regional theater? And unfortunately, the rehearsals for regional theater happened at night, which is when a lot of the the things to be reported on occur. And at first he was like, it shouldn't be too big of a problem. I'll just have people that were there tell me what happened and I'll just assume I can trust them. But one night there was a fire next door to the thing that he was reporting on. And his boss was like, well, get Patrick over there. If he's literally next door, go ask him what's going on with the fire. And the next day he's like, what happened with that fire? And Patrick was like, I don't even know about a fire. And he was like, how could you not know about a fire that you were touching? And he said, a lot of people would like to have this job. And if you don't respect it, get out. And Patrick goes, you know what? I think I will get out. His boss said, it's the job or it's regional theater. And he goes, it's regional theater. (laughs) (laughs) And he was right. He was right. He performed to some of the biggest regions theaters there ever was, including New York City, a pretty big region. Outer space, an infinite void. (laughs) Some people think about getting to the biggest region, but I said, no, no, no. It's about getting to the most infinite void. I say, you think that this is a decent frontier? What if I take you to the final? (laughs) He's actually very proud of himself for standing up to his boss and fire slash quitting, which is something you and I relate to. I've been fire quitted. I have it. I'm a lot more meek than you are. Oh, well, I've been fire quitted twice. <laughs> and I like that about me and Patty. Did you know that hair thinning will happen to approximately one in two women? So if you are among them, you are so not alone. Thinning is normal and Nutrafol helps women address it from within using science-backed supplements. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement clinically shown to improve visible thickness and strength. From postpartum to menopause to plant-based lifestyles and no matter your life stage, Nutrafol has four unique supplements to support women. Each is physician-formulated using drug-free, science-backed ingredients to get the most reliable results. Go to Nutrafol.com and take the hair health wellness quiz to identify the cause of your thinning hair. Nutrafol will give you a personalized plan for better hair growth through their whole body health approach. Nutrafol supports healthy hair growth from within by targeting the root causes of thinning, stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, lifestyle, and metabolism through whole body health. Nutrafol is now available in a vegan formula. Their newest supplement is formulated for women ages 18 and up with plant-based lifestyles who are experiencing signs of thinning. I had no idea that Bug and I should not be shedding the same amount. I thought it was normal. We're just two girls on the go and we've got to sweep it up as we go. But let me tell you what, Nutrafol has really helped me realize that hair loss is something that can be tackled, and I am so excited to be on a journey towards thicker, more voluminous hair. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code WORM. Find out why over 4,000 healthcare professionals recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code WORM. That's Nutrafol.com, promo code WORM. So after he had graduated, everyone had been like, why don't you just go to acting school in a couple of years? Because keep in mind at this point, for some reason, he's only like 17 years old. So he quits his journalism and he goes and he tells his parents, you know what? I've decided I'm going to do what my teachers told me I should have been doing all along. I'm going to work at a furniture store, save my money. 
and go to acting school in two years. And they were supportive, which I think he's a bit surprised by. But I think there was a part of them that realized that there was something great about him and that clearly other people kept recognizing it. He had their full support. And they even said, like, the money you are contributing to the household, take it and put it in your savings for when you go to acting school. I also think there was like an element of like not the same kind of micromanaging parents we have nowadays where they're kind of just like, I don't know, you can pick what you do with your life. I think they were half supportive, half like, I don't know, you're an adult. Go do it then. So he starts working at a furniture factory. He's quite good at it, if he says so himself, and saving his money and just getting in as many reps as he can. He's working his little butt off to try to get good at acting. Here's about an audition for the acting school at the Old Vic Theater. And he does not want his job to know about it because he thinks that they think they're training like a lifelong furniture salesman. So he applies to the Bristol Old Vic Theater School because he had a friend that was accepted immediately, Brian Blessed, as you remember. He talks to his friend Ruth, his mentor, who's like, you can do that. And then the way you pay for it is apply to a grant because all the counties would give out a few arts grants, one to a boy, one to a girl. And so he applies for this county major scholarship. And the timelines on everything are really quite long and not related to each other really at all. So he finally gets an audition, but it's months away. He is told that he won't hear for months about an interview for this grant. Like it's all just kind of up in the air. But he just has this faith that everything is going to fall into place, I think. I think also so many people had bailed him out. Like when he first got his journalism job, he didn't know what he was doing at all. And so he'd go meet some guy who gives him the lowdown on how to be a journalist. And at the end, he goes, take my typewriter. I think you'll need it. Like people are always just kind of coming out of the word work to help him. And he says it's very Dickensian. And it really is like he was the little main character. Everything was conspiring to pull him up from above his station. Yeah. And I mean, there are so many things that he just like didn't even know about. And people would like come out of the woodwork to be like, this is your next step. Go. His mentor, Ruth, is like, apply for this grant. I think part of him goes, I thought you would just pay for it. (laughs) But um, he's like, "Okay, I'll apply. He applies to the school. He goes and he auditions. And as soon as he auditions, he does a monologue from No Exit and a monologue from Shakespeare. Right on the spot, they go, cool, you're in. And he leaves shaking like, well, I thought I would have to go home first. But that's good news. But how is he going to get paid? Luckily, who should run the grant program, but the leader of that summer camp that he had gone to every summer throughout high school? Yes. So he gets his interview and he gets the grant. He's so nervous. He shows up and the guy comes out and gives him a wink and a two thumbs up and then is like, all right, come in and pretend you don't know me. Yeah. So things are really coming up Patrick Stewie. He gets a full grant for like tuition, clothes, housing, books, everything. In those days, it feels like finding an apartment was not that hard. You just kind of called someone and were like, I'm looking for an apartment in this city. And they'd be like, okay, I'll set you up with a guest house. Not a guest house. I think there was more like border rooms. I just think there was like more options where they'd be like, yeah, you could just live with me and have some of my breakfast. And a lot of them were like a couple cents a week and they would come with a bed and four walls and a ceiling and like breakfast and dinner. It's a pretty good deal. So his parents also end up getting council housing because his dad is a veteran and they qualify for it. So they move from their Cam Lane house that had the outhouse where he lived his entire life to a nicer six-room home, I think with three bedrooms and an indoor toilet. So his parents got a lot happier and a lot more comfortable. His dad had a garden and they were so happy with it. And he was moving on up in the world. He went off to acting school. He was initially really nervous at acting school because he's like, oh my God, I'm from like a lower class family in Northern England. Everyone's going to think I'm weird and not educated. And then he gets to know everyone and is like, oh, everyone's from lots of backgrounds. That's kind of nice. Like most acting schools, everyone becomes really close. They're a very tight-knit family. There's many productions. 
He loses his virginity to his college girlfriend, Adrian. I know they don't call it college, but that's what it was. He was 18 to 20 years old. Let me reiterate my longstanding refusal to learn about the British education system. Do not DM it to me and try to explain it to me. I want to not know. Today, they threw out at me the elevenses or whatever. And they're like, at elevens, you find out if you're allowed to learn to read or not. And I'm like... (laughs) Stop it. You stop this. You sound crazy. So he has a fun time at the old Vic school. He gets in a lot of productions. He has a great experience. He makes a lot of friends. He boinks. They were taught to read and understand characters. He was taught to explore scripts. Here's what he learns. If you are an actor and you haven't received a statewide grant to go to acting school, here's what you need to know every time you read a play. One, what is the narrative of the story? Two, what is the play about? What does my character say about himself? What do other characters say about my character when he is present? What do other characters say about my character when he is absent? What is true in the play? What is false in the play? And what does the character actually do? And that is a good place to start. So the one class he does not excel in is improv. Because he's not silly. It takes him a long time to learn silliness. He takes the work very seriously. And when he shows up to improv, he's like prepped all of his answers. And if there's one thing you know about improv, you're supposed to improvise it. And she said, the problem is you need to be vulnerable. And he says, vulnerable. Yes, of course. That was it. Therein lay my fear. I had come up in life believing that to be vulnerable was to invite the worst to happen. From five years old, my age when my father came home from the war to be vulnerable was to put yourself at risk. I'd never been to a therapist, of course, but it was curative to have this realization. Was that pretty good? That was really good. That Thank was you. vulnerable. Well, I was actually going for Patrick Stewart. I know, but I think that your depth into the character had a vulnerability to it. Thanks. I was trying to portray, like, actually strength. I know. Because in strength, there is vulnerability. <laughs> in vulnerability, there is strength. I think I missed reading number seven, What is False? <laughs> <laughs> So one of his big issues throughout his two years of acting school is that his hair was just like coming out in droves. The Agassiz attack. (laughs) He got Agassiz right in the noggin. (laughs) There's only two real bad things that could happen to a man. One, his dad is mean. And two, his hair falls out. And boy, oh boy, do Patrick Stewart and Andre Agassiz have a lot to talk about. Oh, my God. One thing that he did that was really cool is he got to work for like a master bricklayer. Oh, my God. Not just the master bricklayer, the winningest bricklayer in the world. Yeah. He literally worked for the fastest brickmaker of all time. And he learned how to lay concrete cement real good because he was trying to make side money so he could buy a hair transplant surgery. No, he was trying to get by a hair treatment where they like put electrical nodes on his noggin and zapped him real quick to see if that would bring the hair back on. (laughs) We noticed your hair is dead. What if we killed the death and thereby reversed? Anyway, it didn't work. I can't believe what worked for Frankenstein in that book didn't work for Patrick Stewart in real life. (laughs) By age 19, he was bald as a top. And it actually ended up working out because he found out that he was like a wig maker's wet dream. Because it's actually so much easier to put a wig on a bald noggin. And so he was able to like go to auditions with a wig on and then pull his wig off and be like, two actors for the price of one. And people a loved young it. Young one and an old spooky one. <laughs> oh my God. Can I tell you guys about Patrick Stewart's 9-11? He tells it out of order in this book. Oh my God, I missed it. Where was it? Well, it was like, not, he didn't mention 9-11, but it was Patrick Stewart's 9-11. He talks about later in life when he had the privilege of introducing Al Gore at like some event. Oh my God, you mean Patrick Stewart's Mark Wahlberg moment? Yeah. Got it. Sorry. 
Okay. So it's just like out of order in the book and I don't know where else it fits in. So I'm just going to say it out of order here because I think it's important to talk about. So he told Al Gore, the way you present yourself on stage, you don't look at ease when you're like artificially putting a hand in your pocket to look more at ease. It actually comes off really uncomfortable. And so you have to stop like uncomfortably putting your hand in your pocket on stage. He said this to Al Gore like minutes after meeting him. Yeah. They met, he introduced him and then Al Gore got off stage and Patrick goes, I've got some notes. (laughs) And then Al Gore didn't listen to him and he kept on like putting his hand in his pocket on stage and then he didn't become the president and George Bush did instead. And then years later, he saw Patrick Stewart and was like, maybe I should have taken your notes. And Patrick is like, yeah, I'm not going to say that it like would have changed the world, but I don't know. (laughs) So if your hands are in your pockets right now, get them out. You'll never be president. I will say George Bush, he's kind of a finger gun guy, right? Yeah. And people liked that. It was very relaxed and natural. And America loves guns. So this book, I'll just be real with you guys. It's a collection of like silly little moments in his life. And we're going to skip a lot of them. But if you love silly little moments or like explanations of every episode of Star Wars, this is the book track. (laughs) So this actually, I think, was really good advice. One of his acting teachers told him, you will never achieve success by ensuring against failure. That's why everything you and I do, we like leap for failure. (laughs) It's working. And that's why we're the Patrick Stewart of our generation. We actually don't know that we're not because he didn't really become famous until he was like 48. So we've still got oh my a God, good like amount of time. 32 years. We're so young. If you are looking in your closet as the seasons change and thinking, I have to do an overhaul, you have not met Quince. Quince is the go-to place for luxury essentials at prices within reach, but they create these timeless classics that never go out of style. You'll want to keep them in your closet forever. Quince's capsule wardrobe must-haves like 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters from $50, washable silk tops and dresses, and flattering pants make putting together an outfit that much easier. So these days, when you are just flinging your closet door open and saying, I don't see anything to wear, do an absolute 180 on that. You will open your closet. You'll say, oh my God, these are perfect items. Thank you to Quince. Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. Quince also only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I have the most incredible sweater from Quince. I wear it all the time and I feel like it's the perfect sweater to just throw on with jeans and like a cute shoe to be like, oh, that's an outfit. They make the most gorgeous jackets and home goods. I have an amazing bedding set from Quince that I feel like has leveled up my room times a thousand. Get affordable luxury with Quince. Go to quince.com slash worm for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's quince, Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash worm to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash worm. Okay, so as acting school comes to a close, you write to a bunch of regional theaters to be like, hello, come see me in my like closing production, or I would like to audition for you or whatever. And no one really wants to see him. He like got a bad role in a good play. Something about Patrick Stewart is he's never been bad in anything. He's only been in bad plays that were like impossible to win. Yeah. So unfortunately, he was in this play. He didn't get a good role. He didn't get the character at all. He didn't like him. And nobody came and offered him a job. Unfortunately, his dressing roommate was like beloved by all. So every night after the show, like 30 agents would come to be like, where's your friend Alan? And they'd be like, Alan, for the love of God, we have to have you. And he was like, how do I be Alan? 
Anyway, so he goes home absolutely in defeat. He goes on the dole, which is like a huge knock to his family. His family is like, what are you, work shy? Go get a job, bitch. And so he does. He goes and gets a job. Yeah. And he's so ashamed of like returning home from his grand acting school adventure to just be at home again. And then almost immediately, he gets a call from like a small theater that says we need a stagehand slash small roles guy. And he's like, okay. So he goes and he's there for all of two months and they work at a rapid rate. They are doing a weekly play. So every single week they put on a new production. It's like SNL. It is like SNL, but I think they work every week of the year. Patrick talks about a bunch of times that because they're constantly learning new lines, there's often fuck ups. And he would like, as a stagehand, supposed to give them their next line or help them with an entrance. And the amount of times he set people up for failure. One time this woman completely forgot her lines. He kind of fed her her next line so that she could remember the rest of her monologue. And then when she got to the end of the monologue, everyone realized he gave her the final monologue of the play and they had just like skipped two entire acts. Yeah. So he's the assistant manager and getting little parts at the Lincoln Company. And then he gets a call from the Sheffield Company, which is a little bit of a step up in regional theater. And he is going to be doing biweekly shows. So an extra week to prepare. Plus, I think he goes from making like six pence a week to eight. Yeah. And he's not a stage manager anymore. He's like a full-blown member of the theater. He also tells a fun little story about going to the store for the first time to buy groceries for himself. And he didn't know how much a stone was, which same, bro. It's 14 pounds. And so he ordered eight stone of potatoes, which is like over 100 pounds of potatoes. And instead of being like, never mind, he like brought them all home. And then half of them went rotten. And I guess they grow tentacles that will attack. I've actually seen that. That happened to me once. He also tells the story about Jeffrey Ost, who was the director at Sheffield's Playhouse. He was very prim and proper and upper class and always made sure to have one rich person on the cast, which is like a crazy obsession to have. But he was also an extremely proper man who would barely abide sex, romance, loudness, swear words, and violence. A really odd trait for a director. When a steamy scene was being played, I noticed he actually left the auditorium until it was over. That is the funniest thing I've ever heard for a director. Yeah, to be like, please, no sex. <laughs> I can't see anything over PG-13. <laughs> I'll direct it, but I can't see it. He also learns the perilous business of saying I love you on stage because when you say it too many times as an actor, you start to believe it. He hooks up with somebody. That's what he's trying to say. He's dated a lot of co-stars. He has a hard time drawing the line. He also is in the union. He's a proud union rep. Union strong go sag. Okay, so one thing he really struggles with is a sense of inferiority amongst the upper crust. And it comes out a lot when he's dating. He has a lot of anxiety that these parents don't want their daughter spotted with the likes of him. He's a theater actor who comes from, you know, not the poshest background. And he's very sensitive about it. So from the Sheffield Theater, he gets an insane opportunity. The Old Vic Theater, which is a huge deal, is going to have like a touring version where they're going to be taking three shows on an 18-month world tour. And he gets an opportunity to join for, honestly, very a very small role. But he's making 35 pounds a week, which is like a huge step up. And I imagine he's saving on lodging. Yeah, and food. And he's getting to see the whole world. Yeah. And so because he has these small roles, so there's three shows that are on rotation and the headlining starlet of this tour is Vivian Lee of Gone with the Wind. And I will say starlet. I think she's 49 at this point. But a star nonetheless. And he has like one speaking role in one of the plays. And then he is just like kind of on stage as a prop in the other two plays. 
So he's barely at rehearsal. So in this 18-month world tour, he's able to travel a ton. Every time they go somewhere, he has full days where he can just like bop around Australia. Yeah. And also Vivian Lee is like consistently so nice to him. Everyone bullies him for having an ugly tux. So she says at my premiere at the re-release of Gone with the Wind, I want you to sit next to me. And then they have a scene where even though he has one line with her, they have to stay in the wings until the scene is over. And he said every day during the rehearsal, she would say, so Patrick, tell me what kind of day you've had. What have you been up to? We'd softly chat until we were cleared for exit. So she is bipolar and has some mental instability issues. And so her boyfriend is there kind of making sure she like stays afloat. For her, it was very stressful. She didn't have Patrick Stewart's luxurious travel the world and show up for work for eight minutes a day situation. She was doing three separate plays. And on top of that, every time they were in a new city, they'd be hosted by some famous or political family. And that was like every three days. So she was constantly on stage all night, expected to go to these dinners, expected to show up to kiss babies, etc. At one point, they went to a dinner where they had done a double header. So she had done two straight shows back to back. And then they go and they were like, before dinner, we want to give you a speech. And she's like, it's 11 p.m. You need to fucking feed us. (laughs) Yeah. And so her boyfriend like sets up these game nights because she has trouble sleeping. And so they're like, well, she needs to feel like comfortable and joyful in the evening until she falls asleep. So we need to like set people up to just like be her friends in her room until she calls for bed. And so Patrick is like part of this first group of people that's expected to like help entertain her. And he ends up having some really lovely moments with her. I forgot to say he almost didn't even take this gig because he's like, well, the roles are so small and I'm doing pretty well in Sheffield. And the Irish guys were finally like, dude, you're about to pass up an 18-month world tour with Vivian Lee. Are you out of your mind? You'll never get this experience again. Yeah. And at this point, he was 20 years old. Yeah. So he went. He was very happy he went. So he goes back to Sheffield, which he had already left in a lurch the first time because he got called to do this world tour. And they're like, we understand it. We get it. You have to go. He comes back. They cast him as the lead in the role. And what should he get but another call from Manchester? And everybody's like, you're kind of screwing over the whole production, especially because his co-star at Sheffield also got a call from Manchester. And they were both hooking up at the same time. And they were like, we should probably go. And everybody's like, well, you're fucking us over. And he's like, I'm doing what any actor would do. So he goes to Manchester now and he's doing his regional theater thing. But like at a step up. So now he's basically in the minor leagues. And that is when some of his co-stars are starting to get the call from the Royal Shakespeare Company. The guy would come see his co-star in a play. And he was like, wait a second. I've been wasting my time thinking about an audition. Meanwhile, I'm getting kind of like a free audition because they're coming to see someone else, but maybe they'll see me. And they don't really notice him or say anything to him. And he's like, fuck, okay, that one's gone by. Then another co-star gets looked at by the Royal Shakespeare Company. And he's like, actually, this long-term plan I had to eventually get noticed by the Royal Shakespeare Company, I've changed my mind and I want to be noticed tomorrow. Yeah, he's like 22. And he's like, I understand it could take years of work. And then he's like, actually, I want it now. (laughs) So he gets an agent and tells his agent, I would like an audition. And he gets an audition. And he goes in. He has a pretty good audition. But he expected to be given a spot right in the room, the way it had worked out with his acting class. And he doesn't get a call till later. And again, he gets small bit parts where he has like a couple lines here, a couple lines there. And he's very offended by this. Yeah. Okay. There was also this weird moment that I want to talk about where he is in a play where his co-star is anorexic. And she faints on stage and his co-stars try to like work it into the play. And he is like a buzzkill and he's like, no, curtain down, bitch. Like we have to help her for real. And everyone was mad at him about it because the show must go on. But then he's like, listen, at the end of the day, it was ruining the world of the show to pretend that she was sick in the show. It's better to call it, make sure she's okay, and then get the show back up and running. Yeah. 
And I was like, oh, so like there was no concern about the woman who might be dead. No, it was just like an argument about like theater wise. What is a better vibe? He also tells this really funny story about being in Manchester where there was like a boots store, like the makeup shop. And all of these cool rock chicks worked there and they would sit outside and smoke cigarettes. And whenever guys would walk past, they would get catcalled by this like line of rock chicks. I just thought it was very silly. Anyway, so finally he gets his call for the Royal Shakespeare audition. He gets in and he is getting small parts. In the meantime, however, he has fallen in love with a woman that he has met at Manchester named Sheila. She was a dancer and a choreographer. She was incredible. She had come from America and was amazing at it. And there's not a lot of discussion of her, just that she was great at her job and she was passionate about what she did just as he was. At one point he goes, we decided to get on with it. So we got married. As all romances start. There's really very little talk of her whatsoever. Yeah. And then randomly he has a kid and then randomly he has a second kid. But you don't hear much about them ever. As the year wraps up, I'm joining the RSC and getting married to Sheila. Good things are happening. A guardian angel had patted me on the shoulder. I mean, damn right. He joins the Royal Shakespeare Company and he's very inspired by the work around him. I will say this part, we can skip a lot of it because it's just about all of the plays he did in his 14 years at the Royal Shakespeare Company. If you're into Shakespeare and like British theater, I think you would find this really interesting. It did not necessarily like enthrall me in the Patrick Stewart story, but it did make me more interested in Shakespeare. Know what we should do a shake and a shack night. Oh my God. Watch Shakespeare and eat Shake Shack. Yeah. Fun. A shake and a shack to team up with Law and Zanya. I love that. So he's working under Peter Hall. He spends his first year there and says, the reality was that I achieved my dream job on the cusp of turning 26. I had never been so happy, so stimulated, or so surrounded by fine and dear people. I desperately wanted to remain, but this choice was out of my hands. He goes in at the end of the season. It's like sports where at the end of each season, you don't know if you're getting cut or not. And he gets offered a three-year contract. I was to spend 14 years as a full-time member of the Royal Shakespeare Company with my three-year contract renewed four times. And because of this, he gets to have a pretty stable life where they have an apartment in London and they have a cottage out in Stratford. So the Royal Shakespeare Company sometimes performs in London, but it sometimes performs where Shakespeare was born. Stratford-on-Avon, I think it's called. I think it's upon Avon. Oh, sorry. They're commuting, but it's still great. You, I mean, I actually don't really know much about his home life because he barely brings it up. He does say once or twice that, in retrospect, it was a stable a job that an actor could get. But he almost never speaks about his family. And he has an incredible time. For years, he got to travel the world again because sometimes the Royal Shakespeare Company would like loan out a play to Los Angeles. He finally gets to go to New York City. It took him years. I think he was like a very prestigious professional actor for over a decade before he got to go to New York. He got to do a play with a dog that was like really good at acting, but then he didn't keep the dog. Yeah, he went to a shelter. He found a dog. The dog would go off leash live performance for five straight months and he never blew it once. He was a great actor every time. He was like, we were all so sad when I drove the dog back to the pound. And I was like... That dog is a star. It feels like a Drew Barrymore. Like, well, I was the biggest star the world had ever known, but I had no money to eat. <laughs> that dog was a member of the Royal Shakespeare Company. And nobody would take it home. Nobody said, I guess this dog deserves like to live out its days in comfort. It's so crazy. Nobody from the audience even. I can't believe he walked into the pound and was like, I need a dog that can act. One thing that really aided him is that he was never really a leader in the Royal Shakespeare Company. He was never the star that people were coming out to see. He was sometimes in like the second or third tier programs. And towards the end of his run, he was just like, I don't think I'm going to break out here. Like, I don't think this is going to be my moment. But he was also starting to get screen opportunities. So he was starting to do TV movies or 
episodes of TV shows here and there in England. And he just started getting these opportunities and started to wonder, what if I make a run at television? I also want to say he had been told when he was 22 by his director at that first Sheffield place, he said, you're going to be a character actor until your 40s, at which point you'll break out as leading man. He's like, yeah, fucking right. I'll get bigger first than that. And he's quite ambitious. At one point, he was in one of these plays and people were running around with playbills to get people signed. Somebody looks up to him and says, are you somebody? And he was like, by golly, I'll be somebody if it kills me. By golly, I'll be somebody if I lose my whole family trying. So he finally gets to go to Broadway. And at this point, Daniel, his son, is not yet in school. So him and Sheila are able to come for two months. And Sheila's able to make like a work trip out of it and be like, I'm just going to go and see what America's doing on the dance front. And it's only for two months, so I can swing it. And for a long time, his travel was like pretty easy to accommodate with his family. Then he gets offered a production, a movie called Dune, which I think people really like. My dad liked it. He's people now. He's my people. (laughs) My kind of people. (laughs) Mac loved Dune. You know the joke in our family about the most recent episode of Dune? Oh, how you slept through the whole thing. I showed up. I knocked over my entire thing of Coca-Cola and candy and then immediately fell asleep. (laughs) Mac will like play for me the song. He'll be like, what do you think this is from? I'll be like, I've never heard this in my life. He's like, this is the song that played for the entirety of Dune. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Like not ringing one bell. So he actually was shooting this other project that he kind of hated in Frankfurt. And that's when he gets the offer to be in Dune. And he didn't even audition for it. They were like, just be here next week. And his agent had scheduled it so he can shoot between... Germany and Mexico City for Dune. So this is when he stops kind of being in his family, I think. Yeah, I was going to take six months. And he's like, you guys meet me there when you get there. And they flew him first class, which was life changing. He was like, I've fucking arrived. And he gets there and he meets the director, David Lynch. And the minute he meets David Lynch, David Lynch like looks at him and his heart drops and he's never nice to him again. And he could not figure out what was going on. He's like, he's nice to everybody else in the cast, but he's not nice to me. Why does he hate me so much? It turns out David Lynch had seen him in one of his plays at the Royal Shakespeare Company where he'd played like a haggard, worn down man and thought that that's who he was casting. And then when Patrick Stewart showed up all like tanned and healthy and bald and bald, he was like, what the fuck is this? And Patrick Stewart is like, "Okay, if he had verbalized this for even a second, we could have just done the same makeup that made me like a haggard, not bald old guy. Yeah, it felt fixable, but for some reason he was just too pissed to even say anything and it was like too late to fire him. I mean, this is like a big budget film that's shooting for six months in Mexico City and like flew him from Frankfurt to Mexico City first class several times over. Like, get a wig. But he says he's not very proud of his work in that movie because he felt so disconnected because David wouldn't even look at him. As he started to really rise in stardom, his parents were briefly alive. And his mom would always try to travel to see him perform whenever he was in like the northern area of England. So they never came to London to see him perform. But when he was in Manchester or somewhere up north, they were like, yeah, we'll be there for sure. He just tells more stories about working with some of the greats. Ian Holm was in Iceman Cometh with him and had like a mental breakdown on stage where, again, they didn't know what to do. He just came out there and stopped speaking and they had to be like, "Uh, we'll be right back. And they came back with a replacement. He worked with John Wood who was so disrespectful to him on stage that at one point afterwards, Patrick in their dressing room, like grabbed him by the throat and threatened to kill him. And he said, I have cancer and it's bad. And then Patrick was like, I'm so sorry. And he was like, I felt so bad. This guy had cancer and I was mad that he wasn't making eye contact with me on stage. And then the next day it turned out he had completely lied about it. 
Yeah, and they were enemies, and he, like, talked to the director, and the director was like, your guys' tension up there is fucking aces, baby. And then it turned out that he was, like, he was such a bad actor and that he wouldn't look at me, he wouldn't concentrate when he was bored of me talking, he would just interrupt my monologue and start his. But then he got rave reviews, the other guys, so he had to be like, well, I guess he was doing something right. <laughs> I guess I was boring. So then he's supposed to be the main role in Yonadab. Which is, like, a fucked up play about someone from the Old Testament assaulting his sister and then she runs for help to her other brother and he's like no you assault her too and we'll create a master race Ooh! and Patrick was like nobody really liked playing this character but he's like I thought I could do a good job of it yeah he also like liked being offered the lead role in a play he got offered the lead role because the guy who was the lead like nobody liked this play the play was bombing its dick off and the guy just dropped out and they're like well Patrick you know all the lines and then the director's like, I think we could try again in New York and do it better. And Patrick's like, well, if I get to be the lead, I'll go anywhere. But then he gets a call from Gene Roddenberry. Who is that? He doesn't know. But we found out was the creator of Star Trek The Next Generation. So something odd again. So he auditions. He has no idea about this show. He doesn't know anything about it. He's, you know, he's a classical music and old Hollywood type guy. He never heard of the original Star Trek. And by old Hollywood, I mean really old Hollywood, like Shakespeare times. Yeah. The first Hollywood. Stratford upon Avon. I guess the second Hollywood. I think the Romans did some shit. The Colosseum was the first Hollywood. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So he gets this call. They have a meeting with him for Star Trek The Next Generation. And Gene Roddenberry is actually like, never mind. This guy fucking sucks. But everyone else liked him, so they kept calling him back. And he was, like, ping-ponging back and forth between London and Los Angeles. They kept being like, just kidding. Actually, come back. We need you for another audition for the producers. And then he gets it. And he's quite anxious. He's like, to sign on for a TV show, he didn't know how American television worked, that you had to sign on for six years. And it might not go for six years, but you have to guarantee the potential that you will stay available for six years. And he's like, what the fuck? But then they tell him how much money it's going to be. And he's like, let's go, baby. (laughs) Only one person tells him not to do it out of respect for the theater. Yeah. And it's his future best palio, Sir Ian McKellen, who he now makes admit all the time how fucking dead wrong he was. (sighs) So he starts doing Star Trek The Next Generation. And at first, like, no one really knows what's going on. Everyone kind of doubts it because they're like, oh, yeah, a reboot of Star Trek. That will suck for sure. No one wants to see it. No one cares. And it like took a little bit to find its footing, especially because after the first season, we had a writer's strike. So they thought that everything was going to get canceled, especially because it was an expensive show to make. But he starts realizing pretty early on that he is becoming hugely famous. I think the first episode got 27 million viewers. Oh, my God. That's like a lot of people. It was like a real group of hustlers, a couple... Stars like LeVar Burton kind of tent pulling the situation. But other than that, it was a real ragtag team. And they pulled it out, baby, created a legend. So he is living in Los Angeles. He is the captain of a very important ship. And that is the TV show Star Trek Next Generation. The ship he is not really helming, though, is his family ship. (laughs) Yeah. So having to live in Los Angeles essentially permanently when his wife has a very successful career in London It is very difficult. Like they come to visit him, but their lives are just separate. And as the show gets more successful and he doesn't say it, but it kind of becomes quite clear that like even post show, his career is taking off in American entertainment. So he's going to stay. So season two, season three happens. The show is blowing up. He could have never fathomed how successful it would be because he didn't know anything about sci-fi. It was kind of beneath him before he started the show. He notices that his character never gets to have a love life. Like he has flashback episodes, but what could have been? But he's like, 
wouldn't it be nice to see my character fall in love? And then you'll never believe it, but they cast a woman, Janet, right? Yeah. And then his character falls in love. And then so does he. Yes. So they start having an affair. And he doesn't really call it that, but it is that. And she is pretty aware of his situation. Oh, wait, Jenny is her name, I think. I invited her out for dinner the following Saturday and she accepted. We had a delightful Saturday evening and after dinner, I drove her back to our apartment and then it was really happening. I was pleased to be with Jenny, but also anxious and uncomfortable. There was no way around it. I was cheating on my wife. Jenny and I kept our heads down for a long time, but when I told Brent and Jonathan that I was seeing her, neither seemed surprised. They were both very supportive, but advised me to take things slowly and not get caught up in drama. That Easter, his wife comes home and she straight up is like, are you having an affair? And he's like, yep. And she kind of doesn't know what to do. And so then she goes home. She's like, well, do you want a divorce? And he's like, I don't know, really. And he thinks about it. And then he goes, yeah, I think it's best we get divorced. So at this point, his son is in college. His daughter is 16. And it is like not a good breakup. Yeah, he thought they'd be able to have an amicable breakup, but it does not go well. Yeah, it is very one-sided. He says, as I got restless in the 1980s, curious to see what else was potentially out there for me, be it on stage, on TV or film, I got the sense that Sheila wasn't so keen on me pursuing this curiosity. This is, of course, not to villainize her, but to illustrate that our visions of life together had begun to diverge well before Star Trek and Los Angeles beckoned. I will say, I never for once thought that that was her being villainized. If you think that your wife not wanting you to abandon your family to pursue a career that you're already quite fulfilled in. I think she like very rightfully was like, okay, I'm marrying a stage actor in England where there is like a robust theater scene. Also, she seemed quite supportive. Like he was taking movies and stuff. It was only when he then went to America for six months out of the year and then also got another girlfriend that it seemed like she could not go on. Yeah, that is like way too much, I think, to live in a different country and have a girlfriend. You'll never believe it, but him and Jenny, they don't make it too long. They break up soon thereafter because he becomes sort of a paparazzi magnet and it's just not worth it to her. I will say he mentions quite often having a spell of being dependent on sleeping pills and also a crutch on alcohol that I don't think ever goes resolved. Or really acknowledged. There's often like, well, I'd end the night with a scotch. I'd go home to my three wines and a scotch. I kind of thought that the constant mention of how much he was drinking would aim towards sobriety at the end, and it did not. Yeah, I also wonder if the whole thing about his grandfather abandoning his family and moving to America to pursue his acting dreams, if that resonated differently now. If he sees it as like a narrative parallel. The unknown British Shakespearean actor had somehow been transformed into paparazzi and tabloid bait. His career was taking off, but his family had fallen apart. How had it come to this? So he is still hungry for the stage. He, you know, pines for it, if you will. And he just doesn't have time. He says, with the amount of time I had off for Star Trek, there was just no way that I could rehearse and do a whole ass play. But he says, I can maybe do a one man show. And he finds a Christmas carol and he revisits it and he goes, oh, this could be something. So he starts working on it. And every year for a few years, he runs this A Christmas Carol show and it ends up getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And he brings it back to London for rave reviews. And it is a pretty shining point in his career. My parents loved that thing. They saw it? Yes. So my mom asked me to tell Patrick Stewart that and I will. People went crazy for it. Kirk Douglas. Yeah. Again, if you're a fan of Star Trek, he kind of breaks down every episode here in case you needed like a director's cut understanding of Star Trek. He also tells a fun little story of how he didn't really know how episodic television worked. And he thought everyone was being too silly on the set. And so he took everyone into a meeting and he said, you've got to stop goofing around. It's not fair to like the crew. 
if you're so silly all the time. And he said, we're not here to have fun. And they said, L-O-L. They said, L-M-F-A-O. He says Star Trek really peaked in seasons five and six, but it went on to season seven. And then they like wanted to keep going. And I guess it ended because he was like, we got to be done with this. We got to call it quits. He is definitely very like congratulatory of the good parts, but he's very critical of the bad parts. He's like, season one, I can't even rewatch it. It's like episode two was so bad. He's very critical. And then they start doing Star Trek movies. He's like, I won't do the show anymore, but they want to do four films. And then he does something called like Picard later. Yeah. That my parents said was not very good. They said he seemed very old in it. If you guys were looking for their review. Okay. So the show ends. They do a bunch of movies. Some of them are hits. Some of them are not hits. But he's like, I got to do something else. Like, I got to do something different. I can't be Picard forever. Then a script comes across his desk for a character called Charles Xavier. And he is like, no, no more sci-fi. I can't be Picard forever. And they woo him. They're like, this is not the same. You know how Brian Singer has that soft, sensitive side where he's able to connect (laughs) to human beings in a way that they really want? A consensual connection. So they take him out for a couple dinners and they're like, listen how different being Charles Xavier is than being Picard. And so he agrees to do X-Men. And that's where he meets another character more fully. They'd been in the same circles for years, but he meets Ian McKellen. And he's like, oh, we became the best of besties. He said, picture this. The X-Men is a metaphor for the Irish. (laughs) He also starts dating like a 20-year-old named Lisa at one point. He's in a play where art imitated life in that the director wrote about a time when he was in his 60s. A young college student came to his door and wooed him. They're just so powerful that you can't say no. And then he wrote a play about it. And then in performing that play, Patrick Stewart, who was in like 69, started dating his 23-year-old co-star. Cool. It didn't last long. Oh, and at the time... He was married. He got remarried to a woman named Wendy. Because they had all the same passions and enjoyed each other's company, but he found out that's not enough. He never explains what was missing. This was indeed a dangerous situation because Lisa already had a boyfriend and I was married to Wendy. As with my marriage to Sheila, I had already found myself in a state of unhappiness when I began a relationship with another woman. I felt stupid and responsible. My 23-year marriage to Sheila wasn't a mistake, but a case of loving a couple growing apart. However, I didn't feel the same way about my three-year marriage to Wendy. Still, I had cheated on my wife with a younger woman and, and there's no getting around that. And just like my affair with Jenny Hattrick, my time with Lisa Dillon also proved to be relatively short. Oof, sucks to be Wendy, huh? I do find it very interesting that he remains much more in contact with his son than his daughter. Well, his son is also an actor. And his son seems like kind of chill about fucking. And he was in CalArts, so I feel like he was in California during the divorce. Yeah. His son was actually a big part of the Christmas Carol. He allowed him to come and like give quote unquote direction. So I think in the way that sometimes you can buy love. You can nepo baby some love. Yeah. And then he talks about what a funny man he is. He hasn't always been loose, but when he takes being loose seriously. He was on extras. He was in some Seth McFarland productions. He sometimes gets to be like serious in a funny way. He was on SNL where he introduced salt and Peppa, and I guess in a way that is now immortalized in a John Mulaney bit. So in that way, he won being funny by uh, being fodder for someone else's funny. So they're shooting X-Men. He spent much of his time idling in a luxury trailer adjacent to Ian McKellen. We began a conversation that has continued more or less without pause for the next 23 years. Okay, I will say his redeeming quality for me is that in his like 
60s, he got a new best friend. I know. <laughs> I love that. We thought meeting at 25 was late. Listen, if you guys are out there searching for a best friend, it's never too late. People think I'm old. I'll die a spinster. It is never too late to find friendship. And they got to do a double header plays together. So we wanted to go back to the theater. And guess what? He's booked in Waiting for Gatto and then also No Man's Land. He says they opened in London to an enthusiastic audience and the best reviews he'd ever received from the British press. A milestone moment in itself. He is very hung up on reviews. He only got to do the National Theater there once, though, which is one of his big regrets. Yeah. After the play ended, Ian McKellen thought that that was like the peak for his entire career. And he was like, little did he know. He also gets to do Macbeth. And his friend Ian McKellen, who's one of the most famous Macbeths of all time, says, Patrick, there's just one thing I have to say to you. The line tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, you'll never guess what the most important word is. And I wouldn't have guessed it. Patrick told me. Because it's not just about the tomorrows. It's about that there's tomorrow and there's a tomorrow and there's a tomorrow. Do you get it? Should I perform it for you guys? Yes. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this pretty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all of our yesterdays have lighted fools the ways to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and fruts his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. Not if you have a podcast. <laughs> it's a tale told by an idiot. Yes, if you have a podcast. <laughs> Full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. This is actually about our podcast. Oh my God. This is about the fact that we just keep fucking doing podcasts. I think he kills himself after this. <laughs> Literally, I mean, you want to talk about getting Shakespeare. Have you ever heard anything more? Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. I mean, that's us, baby. Uh oh. We are the Macbeth of podcasting. I've always said that. Is that the one that you're never supposed to say in a theater? Maybe. Well, would you consider a studio a theater? I would consider this the theater upon which we perform podcasts. I would say life is the theater stage, baby, and we are just players. <laughs> so he's doing some plays. He's in New York and he goes out to dinner after a play with his friend Joel Gray. Do you guys remember him? He contributed DNA to our favorite nozzle in business. <laughs> I call him Joel Gay. <laughs> I call him Jennifer Gray's nose sake. <laughs> which one is the worst that we said we're killing ourselves in the theater after this so don't even worry about it <laughs> you can try to cancel us but we'll be dead actually can i say something about shakespeare i've always thought i had a note for him i think i've said this before but in macbeth they said like no man born of woman will kill you and you know what the loophole there is it turns out who xy <laughs> i wish that would actually be better the person who kills him, like, was born by C-section. And I was like, okay, that still came out of a woman, though. Oh, I guess you mean so her puss. disparaging. I'm like, C-section babies are real babies, too. And a woman with a C-section is still a woman. I always thought maybe just a woman should have killed him. I would have loved that. I know, but Shakespeare wasn't really ahead of his time the way I am. <laughs> Can I tell you my note for him? Yeah. Different haircut. You don't even know what he looked like. I've seen pictures. It was very chic back then. Yeah, I know, but I wish he had done something else. Anyway, okay, so he goes out to dinner with Joel Gray, and there is a waitress there that is absolutely going gaga because she is such a Patrick Stewart fan, and they're like, this is out of character for her because she doesn't usually do this. Like, famous people come to this restaurant all the time, and she's not usually weird about it. And so he was like, hey, listen, here's my number, and if you want to come see my play, you know, hit me up. And so she does hit him up, and he says, hey, when that girl comes to see the play, tell her to come backstage and say hey. 
So she comes backstage and he's like, what if we got dinner right now? And then they go back to his place and they've been married ever since. Okay. Well, not really ever since. They like dated and they broke up and they broke up on a trip to her parents' house and her dad had to like drive him to the airport. Can you imagine bringing your 80-year-old boyfriend to your parents' vacation home and then being like, we broke up in the middle of the night. Dad, take him home. Her parents were like younger than him. I don't know. Get an Uber. I guess it was before the days of Uber. Yeah. So he was like 70. Because apparently she was downstairs like crying and Patrick had to explain to them what happened that they broke up. I just feel that nobody was acting their age and there was a lot of ages to pick from. (laughs) Well, he does say quite specifically he's never felt his age. He said when he was younger, he felt older. And now that he's older, he feels younger. He's felt approximately 40 for like most of his life. Anyway, now they're married and live in Park Slope, which makes sense because I was like, why is he in Park Slope? And I was like, oh, because she's like true to her waitress roots. (laughs) So he also gets knighted, which is like a huge deal. The queen is like, oh, what do you do? And he's like, stuff. And she's like, vibes, you're a knight. And then it's all about how happy he is with his wife and their marriage. His daughter did not come to the wedding and him and his kids are not super close, but he doesn't really need them. It seems like him and Sonny are super happy. Yeah. She like helps him be silly. She always like takes videos of him and puts them on the internet. They did E because she's into that kind of thing. MDMA, not E news. Anyway, and then his brother died and that was very sad, but at least he got to see his kids again because they showed up to the funeral. Also, he made friends with the squirrel. (laughs) They (laughs) named it Cyril and then they changed it to Cheryl. Because squirrels don't speak British. And he just keeps doing more Star Trek. And he says, would I do another? Never say never. And I'm like, no. You could say never. At some point, you say enough. He also thinks Hugh Jackman is so great. I believe him. The only thing that I'm putting an end to is this book, is I think you might have gotten the gist of me by now. Also, I hear Sonny calling. Supper's ready. He loves his wife. Third time's a charm, baby. <laughs> <laughs> he loves that wife of his. God bless. That young, young wife. <laughs> anyway... To discuss his book, Make It So, please welcome our very special end of episode guest, Sir Patrick Stewart. (laughs) How random, huh? (laughs) Well, it's so wonderful to have you here. It's so nice to meet you. Thank you so much for being with us, Sir Patrick Stewart. We just read your memoir, Make It So, and we are so excited to be able to talk to you about the process of writing a memoir. And our first question that we're always curious about is what made you decide to write a memoir? It it wasn't my decision. Um, (laughs) The opportunity arose. Um, It was not something that I planned to do. This was just at the beginning of COVID three years ago. And I had been invited in the past by publishers to write a memoir. And my work schedule never allowed it because I'm not a writer. Uh, I knew that it would be an arduous task, perhaps. And so I'd always had to pass because there was no opportunity for writing. And then when my agent called me and said that uh, Simon Schuster had come up with this offer, Uh, And I said, oh, look, I've turned it down in the past. And they said, look, you're not going to work, Patrick. Nobody is going to work. It's all coming to a stop. So you're going to have a lot of time on your hands. And uh, so why don't you give it a shot? And if you don't like it, after a week or two, we'll return the advance. And um, you can go back to your jigsaw puzzles. (laughs) So I, I agreed. And from the moment I sat down at my computer 
and began to think about my childhood. I was lost. I mean, I wasn't lost with confusion. I was lost in the memories that came. And they simply built up and built up. The more I wrote, the more I was flooded by recollections. Some of them, you know, 75 years old. I enjoyed it so much. When I, I worked in my study, which is upstairs in Los Angeles, in our home there, and whenever I would come down, my wife would look at my face and say, oh, I know what you've been doing. You're working on your memoir, aren't you? Because your face is all smiley and lit up. And that, that always made me feel very, very good. So it was not remotely an ambition of mine to write a book. But having written it, and now held it in my hands from time to time, I am both excited and confused because I really don't know how it was achieved. It was just sitting alone with my memory and my thoughts and trying to be honest and accurate and frank and entertaining at the same time. So you said it was a, a positive experience and you were often smiling, but the childhood part of your book was very personal and it had some painful memories in it. And you talk a lot about the things that you discuss, your relationship with your father, your parents' relationship, but it was something that you couldn't even admit publicly until you went to therapy, I think, in your 60s. Was it cathartic to get it out or were there like incredibly painful bits? They were painful, yes. And at times even distressing. But I felt it important that I included that aspect of my childhood, which was not all like that. Some of it was, but it was dark and depressing. Um, but I knew that I couldn't just overlook it because it had left a mark on me. And one of the reasons that I fell in love with acting was that being on stage gave me an opportunity not to be Patrick Stewart. I could become someone else, another character. And that kind of escapism made a huge difference to me. And performing was a ritual that helped me live with the memories as well as the reality of aspects of my childhood. How would you say writing that part of the book affected your like understanding of your parents or the way you understand your childhood versus going to therapy? Because we read a lot of celebrity memoirs. That's sort of our specialty. And everybody says it's such a therapeutic process. But I wonder for somebody who's been through the therapy process and now on the other side of that has written this book, how would you compare and contrast the two about what it does for you emotionally? I, I think I've been enriched by expressing those recollections and what the experiences did to me. I certainly know that it helped me as an actor because it made me want to explore the feelings that I had inside me. And of course, I also had great teaching. Even as a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, 14-year-old, I was being helped and advised by my English teacher, who was also an amateur actor and director, and by a woman who became so significant in my life called Ruth Wynne Owen, to whom my book is dedicated, along with my English teacher, Cecil Dorman. She taught me about how to open up myself to performance, to acting, 
to taking on the character of a, a stranger and becoming him. And that was invaluable to me because I, I was learning those things at the age of 13, 14, 15, which is earlier than I think it usually happens. At 17, I went to drama school. And at 19, I was a professional actor earning a living. And uh, I was to do that without interruption for about 15 years. I was very lucky to be working continually in those days. And it became for me, and in some senses, a damaging to aspects of my personal life, that it took over from everything else. And my study of characters and performances and learning how to deal with Shakespearean text became the most important thing in my life, which meant that other things were left behind, and that was not good. Uh, yes, you mentioned therapy, and I had good many years of that, and occasionally still do, and I have found it immensely valuable in both professionally as well as personally my own life. So speaking of these mentors and these people who helped you with your education, it, it does read in your book that you had a lot of people who helped you not just with understanding how to become an actor in terms of becoming a character, but also just helping you along the path of where to go next, how to apply to drama school and where to continue your education in a world pre-internet. Having these incredible mentors, do you have any advice for young actors who are following along the same path now? Yes, because I, I do get asked to comment and, and to give words of advice sometimes to young people is that they must be ready and prepared to examine who they are and then to be able to express that. And this requires an aspect of fearlessness, which can make it not painful, but can make it a profound experience, enlightening and creative. And that's what I discovered. I think in your book, you say... You can't be afraid of failure. That was uh, advice given to you. Don't insure against failure, I think was the exact quote. Yes, because you mustn't shut any aspect of yourself down. It has to be accessible and open. And I still passionately believe in that now. And I think that as I've grown older, I have been able to look at myself and make the internal connections with a character who only exists on pages until he comes to life. And there are a number of other actors, some of them colleagues, one or two of them dear friends, who I profoundly admire because of their ability to do this. And I watch their work whenever I can because I find it so instructive. Speaking of colleagues you admire, one of the things that we admire the most about you is the way that you're able to work with some of your best friends, specifically fellow Sir Ian McKellen. We're two best friends who work together. Would you call him a best friend? I love Ian deeply. Mm -hmm. So yes, it, it began as friendship and then a profound respect grew and a delight in his company and often his advice and help and, uh, and watching his career develop and his work transform and transform and we have done quite a lot of important things together, which have been great experiences. That's how I feel about Claire. 
<laughs> well, then we're both very fortunate. Do you have advice for working with a close or best friend? Well, you must let the trust in you take over and know that you are safe because this best friend is not going to undermine you or in any way block what you're trying to do. On the contrary, you will open it up. Ian and I did uh, two plays together, Waiting for Godot, which had a characters of four men, and also, um, oh, Lord, I now can't remember. No Man's Land. I saw them both. No Man's Land. <laughs> Thank you. No Man's Land, which again had four male characters, and the four of us connected so well that we were able to do both plays. And on two days a week, we would do both plays on the same day. Not one after the other, but a matinee and an evening performance and then the other way around. It was such a joyful experience and uh, hard work. But you knew that whatever you attempted, your three colleagues would be there to support it. And we always delighted when something new was discovered. So I have to quote you on, uh, I believe it was the set of Star Trek saying, we're not here to have fun. And yet that seems like great fun to be able to work with three people you admire and respect and love. I know you say you've maybe loosened up a bit in the past decade or so. Is there anything you've done on a set or on a stage recently that you think a younger you would just be maybe appalled by? Is there anything you're doing these days that an earlier Patrick Stewart would just be like, that's not professional? <laughs> I think taking risks to make attempts at something new and different and having the confidence in oneself and one's colleagues that even though it might be challenging, it wouldn't actually ever mess everything up. It would just simply be another vision of the story we were trying to tell and the feelings that we were hoping to communicate. So working in New York now, you've you've had a couple of big New York experiences, your first slice. Have you been able to try a chopped cheese? Have I been able to try what? It's Claire's favorite sandwich. It's called a chopped cheese, and they are a very New York deli specific food. You can only get them at bodegas. <laughs> oh, really? A top cheese? No, I don't think... Yeah, it's like a Philly cheesesteak, but they chop it up. And so it's it's almost like a chopped salad. But if the contents were just cheese, onions, and like really low-grade beef. <laughs> no, I've never had that. And I shall have to find somewhere where I can attempt to enjoy it. It's going to change your life. It's one of the best foods out there. It's like a cheeseburger, but mixed, garbled almost. <laughs> Eating these days has become much more interesting than it was once upon a time. Yeah. I find. <laughs> the options are too extensive, some would say. Indeed. Do you ever throw your title in people's faces? Is there ever a moment where somebody's got a little bit of attitude or they're not really showing the respect you think you deserve and you go, it's Sir Patrick Stewart to you? Never. That has never happened. <laughs> on the contrary. Uh, if people use my title, which I am proud of, I always say it, it isn't required, you know, you know, if you want to call me, sir, you can, but I respond to Patrick. Or even <laughs> for years, I was known as Pat Stewart. 
and in my family and in my in the workplace. And uh, I was never really comfortable with that being called past. Although, you know, with the Irish connections, which I believe I had, uh, it seemed appropriate at the time. But respect is a very important quality for certainly for performers to bring to their work. I mean, respect of others, because it creates this atmosphere of safety, which I've already talked about. And you know that nobody is trying to hurt you or undermine you or take something away from you. Never. It's always adding, adding, adding. And that's one of the things that makes performing so exciting and satisfying. You talk about having actually, in some ways, secretly, some acting in your family. And looking back through the lens of your life, what do you think your grandma was trying to tell you when she was telling you about your grandfather's love of theater? I think that she was aware that it was difficult for me to become a professional actor, given the kind of community that I grew up in. Now, in, in that community, amateur acting was very, very popular. In my little town of 9,000 people, there were nine or 10 amateur theatrical organizations, some of them just doing a pantomime at the end of the year, you know, for Christmas. But you were not thought weird or odd if you were an actor. Whereas I know that I've talked with other actors who said that was a struggle when they were younger. And people said, oh, no, pull yourself together and get a real job, a proper job. And, you know, this is what children do, what you're talking to do. Well, I never had that experience. I was always supported, but my confidence was shaky because I'd had very little education. I left school when I was 15, and the education that I'd had was fairly basic, though generous and kind and supportive, but hardly ever scholarly. And when I got into the profession, of course, I found I was working with college graduates, university graduates who had all kinds of initials after their names and so forth. I was a little intimidated. And I was also intimidated somewhat by very, very successful actors who were not being unkind. It was just me being somewhat in awe of them and what they had achieved and feeling that I was not comparable. I'm happy to say that mostly those negative feelings dissipated a long time ago. So you talk a lot about this regional theater, and it was really interesting in your book, the incredible opportunities to be a professional working actor in regional theater. And we talk a lot on our podcast about the concept of celebrity. Do you think anything has been lost in the craft when it comes to people's, like the visibility of celebrity and people kind of wanting to skip those central middle steps? I think it's become much harder. The advent of very popular, very successful television and, in a sense, films has little by little reduced the impact of drama, of plays. These days, you will find that London... West End, which was always the home and the center of British theater, as well as Broadway here in New York, 
there is far less drama on the stage now than there used to be. Far fewer plays. There's a lot more music and uh, other kinds of entertainment. But I feel that a lot of young actors have a reduced opportunity to be able to experiment and practice and learn and have experiences and give themselves completely to the, what they're doing. I learned quite early on that that was essential, and I think it was very important for me to do that. And it still continues. One of the wonderful things I've discovered about acting is that there is always growth essential and available if you want to embrace it, if you want to take it, to experiment with different ways of communicating. And that's what I'm looking forward to doing. I haven't been on a stage probably for three or four years now, uh, but I have done some television, of course. And I'm eager, I'm hungry to get back in a rehearsal room with wonderful colleagues and director and find a way through a marvelous piece of writing. I've missed it. A large part of the last year has been taken up with this book, the memoir, and now the um, several weeks of promotion, promoting it and traveling and touring and so forth, uh, which I don't mind, I enjoy. But it's changing the way I approach my work. And I, I want to give it another shot, a really good shot, at, at something important on stage, because it is such a different experience than being on a camera. Is there a role that, do you have a dream role? There could only be one last play, one last role. Do you have something you feel you never were able to do? Yes, there is. Many, many years ago, I played a supporting role in a very, very good production of King Lear, Shakespeare's great tragedy. And the role I played, the character I played, died before the interval. And there is this tradition in the theater that if your character disappears from a text before the intermission, you can you can leave, you can go home. So that was always an advantage. But Lear is one. I think about King Lear every day, and I have huge passages of it in my head, and I find myself running through it. But one of the things that uh, I worry about is my stamina, because the play runs three and a half, it can be four hours, and he is the central character of the play, although he does get one 20-minute break in the middle of it, which I know actors have said to me that it, having that break just saved them, that they were able to finish the play because they could go to their dressing room and lie down on the floor or onto a... <laughs> I feel so lucky to have had the opportunity to do this job and that my parents and my teachers early in my life were so supportive when I finally said, I want to do this for a living. I want to get training, professional training, and I want to be an actor. And you know, some people said, you're out of your mind. You can't do that. You're, it's just not available to you. And, Luckily, they were wrong, because I think what they were basing their responses on was fairly superficial, and not what was really required internally, as well as to an extent intellectually. I wanted to ask if people could just take one thing away from your memoir, what do you hope that is? That maybe it opened a door or two 
in their experience of what the world can be like for others. I would like that. But I think more than anything else, I wanted it to be entertaining and hopefully interesting. The, the responses so far have been very encouraging. Okay, my final question is, when's the last time you saw a ghost? Because I think that is the part of the book that even if they're big fans of you, might take them by the most surprise that you're kind of a paranormal guy. Yes. This has been in my life since I was 12 years old when I experienced the first thing. And I was assured by somebody who was familiar with it that I wasn't imagining it. It was actually happening. This was at a dear friend's house, a big old house in the countryside in England. And there was a painting hanging in one room, a portrait of uh, an early 19th century person. And I kept thinking that very often there was a mist around this painting. And finally, one day, I got brave enough to say to the owner of the house, look, am I imagining, am I making this up? Am I seeing things that aren't there? And they asked me, what, what was I talking about? And I told them about the mist, and they said, oh, you've noticed that, have you? Some people do, and some people don't. And they said that wherever they had lived and wherever that painting hung on the walls, it always had a mist around it. And then there were other things, things I saw, things I heard, experiences that sometimes were uncomfortable, but often not, were just interesting. You asked me when was the last time. It was quite recently. It was when my wife and I were looking for a house, and we went into one. And um, as soon as I got in the doorway of the house, I felt slightly uncomfortable. It was unoccupied at the time. It was empty. But we went upstairs, and I wandered into one room, and Sonny went further down a corridor. And all of a sudden, I began choking as if something had me by the throat. My wife heard me gasping and came running in and dragged me out. She didn't experience anything, but I had. And it, it was unsettling. I imagine. That is unsettling. <laughs> yeah. But voices, footsteps on stairs, one house that I lived in here in the United States had an area in the hallway which was always cold. I rented this house to a family who came to live there, and they were very nice. And one day the wife called me because there was a problem with a stove or a, an oven or something. And just before she hung up, she said, oh, by the way, you didn't tell us about the other things that came with your house. Oh, dear, I thought, because I hadn't told them anything. But in this house in particular, it was almost daily. I learned that their son, their small son, experienced intense cold and then saw a figure standing in the spot where this cold area was. I never saw the figure. But the little boy had done, and he told his parents about it. I'm, I'm curious about it, and I, I try never to feel threatened by it. And I don't think that I'm crazy. I don't think so either. Because when I hear a story like I did from this child's mother, I don't know, was experiencing the same thing. I fully believe in ghosts, 100%. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for sharing more about your memoir and about your supernatural experiences. We have had a wonderful time talking to you. And I am excited for the world to get to read your book. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it a lot, and I'm very grateful to you. I hope we can see you on the stage in New York. Oh, I hope so, too. I love working in New York, and not necessarily on Broadway either, but I love American audiences and people who love the theater because they tend to demonstrate how much they enjoy it, a little more than English audiences do. I saw you in both Waiting for Gatto and No Man's Land in college, and I love them both. It's one of the great brags of my life. <laughs> well, I'm so glad to hear that. They were certainly one of the greatest experiences of my career were those two plays. My gosh. Well, thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Take care and be well. You, you too. too. So thank you so much, Sir Patrick Stewart. We would like to bestow upon you on a CNBC knighthood. You are now worm, Patrick Stewart. <laughs> Claire, how fertile was this soil? You know, I think it depends on your interests. I think if you're interested in like British theater or Star Trek, it would be very fertile. He gives you a ton of stories. So if that's your thing, 4.5 out of 5, if you were interested in hearing about two adult male best friends hanging out. He doesn't really talk that much about their relationship. I'd say it's a 2 out of 5. Yeah, I think for like general life story, we get about 3 out of 5. But yeah, if you love Star Trek or Shakespeare, you get a little bit more. How many warm teenies would you sip? Not too many. I could marry the guy, you know? <laughs> I was a waitress once too. So I would say a Zoom call is perfect. And you know, listen, I've seen him in many a thing. I love X-Men. I'm a huge X-Men girl. I know. I come from an X-Men family. I come from a Patrick Stewart family. This is one of those things where I'm like, I don't even want to know you. I just want to enjoy you. Yeah, I would say a worm teeny over Zoom is delicious. All right, we love you guys. And who do we love the most? We love our five-star wormies. Thank you so much to our five-star reviewers. I love your butts off. Thank you, LL. L-M-L-K. Ladies, ladies, love milk, baby. And we love you. Thank you, A underscore Yaz. Yaz, this was a friggin' stunning review. A-M-B-R. Five, five, five stars is the color of your energy, sailor. Acapella heart. Listen, if I could sing, I would acapella right into your heart right now. But because I care about you, I'm not going to. Anna, the archer, I would love to fling an arrow right into your heart like you did to mine. Annie Bobani, banana fanafo, thank you. Hey, Herge 90. Hey, did you hear 90 stars to you? That is all this week. Thank you guys so much. I adore you.